Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 2, Episode 6 proper, 7 total. This is the final story uh, that we're going to discuss, Revelation, appropriately, uh, from Flannery O'Connor's Everything That Rises Must Converge, short story collection published posthumously in 1965, just after her death in August of 1964. So um, Revelation is the the last story that she had published during a lifetime. It was published in 1964 in the Sewanee Review, and it actually won the O. Henry Award for the best short, you know, for the best short story of the year um, that she found out about before she died. So it was actually the O. Henry, o. Henry Award for 1965. Um, but like I said, she knew that she was going to win it before she died. So um, this is the third O. Henry Award that she won. She won for Greenleaf in 1957. And everything that rises must converge. The story uh, in 1963. So, um, so, so, going out on a high note, and like I said, we're going to do the the Omega episode last, uh, where we just talk about the the collection as a whole and Flannery as a writer and a person, and just um, you know our our parting thoughts on discussing a short story collection versus a novel, um, and then hopefully what we'll do for next summer. Uh, <laughs> Lord willing, the brothers Karamazov. So, um, so Whitney, you've you've taught the story before, or what, no, what's, I haven't. What, what's your uh, kind of let let us know, like what what was your understanding of Revelation before you read it specifically for the podcast? You know, I, I think I read it years ago, and was a little shocked by it. It is shocking that moment um, in the waiting room when it suddenly turns violent. I remember being shocked by it the first time I read it, and I, I think that maybe I read it a decade ago or something. And up until that point, the story is just tooling along kind of in a darkly comedic way. The people in the waiting room having their various conversations really reminded me of people I had been around growing up. It felt real to me. And, in fact, I read in one of her letters that um, O'Connor had said that she had gone to the doctor and, and been sitting in the waiting room and heard a conversation somewhat similar to what ended up in the story. She said, but the real conversation was better. Um, but it felt very real to me. Like it could be a transcription of actual conversations I've heard before, which I think for someone who's n- not from the rural South, that might sound nuts, but it felt very real to me. It didn't feel exaggerated. And then suddenly something very unusual and exaggerated happens, so it it's shocking, and it's kind of in the middle of the story that this dramatic, violent thing happens, and you come to expect it more at the end of the story. So that was surprising in and of itself. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about like this being based on a real conversation. Uh, most people would never think people would be this openly racist uh, and openly dismissive of people. Um, in a passive-aggressive way, like just everything that happens that comes out of Ruby Turpin's mouth um, is shocking by today's standards. But like Whitney said, like even, you know, growing up in in Waynesboro, Georgia, she might have heard something somewhat similar to this conversation like in the 80s or 90s. Especially, I guess, behind closed doors. Uh, Maybe people weren't talking this way in a public place, like a waiting room, but were to some degree... In their homes, um, right? And now even that has 
changed, I think, for the most part, to a large degree. Like any conversation that's happening like this is happening almost entirely in a person's head. It's not. It's not even being verbalized, you know, between between two people in a car or something like that. It's like because there's at least one person in every family who would say, "Wait, yeah, don't say that. That's horrible." Yeah. So, um, just like the the short story collection begins with um, everything that rises must converge. This uh, the short story cycle article that I read. you know, mentions this as being the intentional final story of the cycle, and then they published Parker's Back and Judgment Day in addition to those original seven. So um, to me, this has a lot of overlaps with Everything That Rises Must Converge because Ruby Turpin is very similar to Julian's mother. Uh, in, in, in her uh, public affectation of her personal inward... Um, you know, uh, private, um, uh, visions, uh, about race. And so, uh, like w- when Julian's mother gets on the bus and she's like, Oh, I see we have the bus all to ourselves, meaning there are no black people on the bus. That just seems to exactly what Ruby Turpin would say if she got on a, on the bus instead of Julian's mother. Like that, it seems like she would word for word say exactly the same thing. Um, and so even though, She's a different character from Julian's mother. There are some overlaps between those two characters in particular, uh, but also uh, I think she overlaps with Mrs. May mm-hmm. in Greenleaf. And um, to, ex- to some extent, maybe slightly with uh, Mr. Fortune in A View of the Woods and um, maybe even to, to a tiny extent... Uh, uh, Thomas's mother in the comforts of home, uh, this idea of like she tells herself she gives to everyone. Like she she seems to be a, a giving open person, um, but that doesn't keep her from having you know opinions about people that I would just say are sinful. Um, if we weren't in her head, she would probably seem at first at least like a jolly kind of yeah. harmless person more or less. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't, the things she says in her head are much harsher than the things she says out loud. In fact, the um, white trash woman gets most of the harshest lines in the waiting room. Right. And um, it's almost like Mrs. Turpin and that stylish woman understand that part of them being classier than the white trash woman is that they soften the way they say things out loud. You're talking about the lady. It only calls her a lady. The stylish which, lady. Yeah. yeah. So I bring that up because, first of all, it never even mentions Ruby Turpin's first name until after the the incident. <laughs> the throwing the book at her head, which, you know, is very similar to what happens to Julian's mother in uh, Everything That Rises Must Converge. And... She gets jumped on and choked out uh, like uh, Mary Fortune Pitts does to Mr. Fortune uh, in A View of the Woods. And so we, we only find out Ruby as her first name, you know, toward, toward the end of the story. Uh, so the beginning of the story, we keep getting Mrs. Turpin. And one of the words, or I guess this this is like middle of the first paragraph it says her little bright black eyes 
took in all the patients as she sized them, sized up the seating situation. There was one vacant chair and a place on the sofa occupied by a blonde child in a dirty blue romper who should have been told to move over and make room for the lady. And I think, you know, we, we've mentioned this already several times on, on this season of the podcast. The zeitgeist of the South really going forward from the Civil War couldn't be a sustained racist zeitgeist because slavery ended. And so that, that zeitgeist is still in the process of ending. Like, I don't think it's purely uh, a thing of the past, but I think that the racism of, of like white people are superior to black people. That's why black people have to be enslaved and white people can't be enslaved. Like that, that was the mentality of the American South and, and other places too. Um, but you know, for, for our purposes before the civil war and the civil war started to correct that zeitgeist. Uh, but the South, even to this day, I think prizes ladies over any other thing. Like a lady is the highest pinnacle you can, um, you know, you, you can aspire toward. And so uh, Mrs. Turpin not only thinks of herself as a lady, mm-hmm. but she's going to give dignity in proportion to how ladylike someone is. Mm-hmm. And that men, it's almost like in this vision, in this zeitgeist, women are better than men. Because it's better to be a lady than to be a, a, a gentleman. At the very least, the women have all the initiative in this story, yes. seemingly. Yes. Um, the men are just there for the most mm-hmm. part. Yeah. She really prizes Claude. I actually thought that was the one redeeming thing about her throughout the story is that she seems to really be sweet about Claude. Like, she really yeah. likes Claude and looks out for him, you know, wants him to approve of her, wants affection from him. I yeah. mean, it's... It's like a humanizing thing for someone who's so judgmental as Mrs. And it's calls her calls her Mrs. Turpin, so it emphasizes her marriage so many times. Yeah. Whereas, like you say, um, we get the white trash woman and the pleasant lady or the stylish lady. That right. distinction is made, and uh, the moment I was thinking of in terms of the the harsher or softer way of talking about things. There's a slightly more euphemistic way of talking about black people. And it's not really, I'm not saying it's really euphemistic. I'm saying it's slightly. The the pleasant woman, I mean, the pleasant lady seems to be more of a lady, I think, as registered by how gentle she is and talking about other That's people. Yeah. So you get... The white trash woman says they ought to send all them inwards back to Africa. That's where they come from in the first place. The pleasant lady says, oh, I couldn't do without my good colored friends. So she's mm-hmm. using gentler language and saying something kinder. Yeah. And then Mrs. Turpin says there's a heap of things worse than an N-word. It's all kinds of them just like it's all kinds of us. I think Mrs. Turpin feels kind of enlightened for saying that. Yeah. She feels that she's being open-minded, progressive, compared right. to this white trash woman. Um, it, it's a way for her to feel less racist or not racist by comparison to this woman yeah. she has contempt for. And, and that's why when I bring up this concept of, like, the lady, I really think that Ruby Turpin is a classist and race falls under that. Yeah. Like, she's been raised to see black people as lower class. But then she talks about, like, black people can own land, and there's one that has a swimming pool mm-hmm. and a Cadillac. And, and 
you know, is doing much better than she and and Claude are doing. Mm -hmm. And Um, she says she'd want to be, if she had to be someone else, she lands on being a black woman. Yeah. And and, and she's like, I would be, you know, a, a lady... This color, like that's yeah. that's how she phrased it. She's like, I I would be a be black lady, a true black lady, you know. And like, she sees oh, that as possible, like Omar Lil's grandmother. Um, for those of you who've seen The Wire, so yeah, and that 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 like, if God was going to reshuffle the deck and make her something different, He would just have to make her a lady one way or the other. Like yeah. He would He wouldn't make her trash. And she's. It seems to me that she's trying really hard to understand the world, and she feels a little flummoxed by the world. Yes. Because it's changing, and it's complicated. I mean, she walks into a uh, waiting room and is trying really hard to classify everyone in there and make sense of who's who and what's what, by looking at their shoes, especially. Their shoes are a good index Mm. to it. So, of course, in the story, she's wearing her good black leather pumps at the beginning of the story, which makes it sound like she has one good pair of fancy shoes, and she put them on to put her best foot forward, so to speak, in this waiting room. Later, she puts on some old brown Oxfords after she's really been defeated by being attacked and characterized as a a warthog from hell. But she puts on these old style Oxfords and doesn't even put the heels on. She just kind of slips them on like bedroom slippers and clomps around. I think that's a, a sign right there that she's mm-hmm. been humbled and she's not trying to put her best foot forward socially in terms of her class anymore. She's just bewildered. And I point. think brown, the brown Oxford, I think that's what a Girl Scout shoe is. Like, uh, that, that's what the that's what girl Mary who Grace attacks is her wearing. is wearing, yeah. And also what uh, Mary George is wearing in The Enduring Chill and also what several other characters in some of her other stories that I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's interesting that, like, Girl Scout shoes is is such a sign to Flannery O'Connor. Like, that person had on Girl Scout shoes. Like, Especially I don't even know what Especially when an adult would... wears them. Yeah. It seems to me something distinctive. I don't, I, I don't even know what, what would compare now. Like, not even Crocs. Because, to me, Crocs are, they're much more versatile than a, a Girl Scout shoe. I like, think they're supposed to be dowdy. Yeah, Girl you're Scout right. Shoes. You're right. Do you remember how in a late encounter with the enemy, the granddaughter yes. mm-hmm. is yeah. wearing her fancy yeah, yeah, yeah. outfit at this gala event, a movie premiere, and then she forgets to change out of her Girl Scout yes. shoes, and it's so yes. humiliating. She's on stage in the spotlight, and then suddenly her dress kind of slips aside, and you see these yes. dowdy yes. Girl Scout shoes. And, that, yeah, that's that's the other story that I was thinking of that... um um Sally Poker Sash, who's 62 years old and graduating from college, um, th- that she's just like still wearing her Girl Scout shoes under this, I think it's a silver nightgown or something. You've given up trying, I guess, if you're wearing. It's the opposite of wearing. You know that that um, woman who's chewing gum really quickly in the waiting room in yeah. Revelation? She's wearing red high heel yes, shoes. Yes. She's a striver, I guess. Ooh, she's yeah. trying hard, yeah. and that Mrs. Serpent thinks she's common but not trashy. So I think she's climbing yeah. the social ladder, but she's just n- not really a lady yet. Um, yeah. But you've given up trying if you're wearing Girl Scout shoes, and you never tried in the first place if you're wearing your bedroom slippers, which one right. of the women in the is basically just wearing bedroom slippers. And I think her name is Miss Finley. Like when she gets called back. Yes. Um, so she's not married, and so that that concept of like she's at the doctor's office by herself, whereas, you know, 
Ruby Turpin is there with her husband. Now, granted, he's the one being seen by the doctor, yeah. but she went to the doctor's office in black high heel shoes. Like You get the impression ladies <laughs> go everywhere in heels, maybe gloves and a hat if they're older, and that ladies don't go places by themselves. In, yes, in yes. In Flannery O'Connor's world, because... We get that in everything that rises. Yeah. The mother doesn't want to ride the bus by herself. You need to be accompanied. And, and we get that, uh, like, when when the black ladies in the back of the truck are talking to Ruby at the end, you know, she's telling them what happened in the in the waiting room. And, you know, they're, they're treating her like, you know, oh, you, you the sweetest lady I know. I never known a sweeter lady. Like, um... Oh, you, you, you is as sweet and pretty as you can be. Like, she, they're, they're just flattering her and, and, like, lifting her up as if she's just the, the paragon of, of, of civility or whatever, which, of course, she isn't. I mean, that's why. And she, she knows they don't mean it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. She, it even says that explicitly. And we'll talk about that scene, you know, in a little bit um, because it does connect to the waiting room scene. Mm-hmm. But, um... Yeah, that's why I wanted to start with this idea of ladies. Like, I really think Ruby Turpin's primal flaw in terms of her, like, where is her sin originating? It's that you can classify people and that race is a means of classifying people, but that classifying people is her is her primary sin which comes it comes out of pride the same way that racism does but it's not limited to like she's not like oh all white people are equal but black people are less than all white people like she clearly has this ranking system in her mind and it's like the AP poll and the coaches poll and it's like something it's quite complex it's like she's got She's got uh, parallel polls of, of who's who's number one, who raised, you know, who 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 was rising five spots from last week. I wrote in the margin of my book, we all just learn this by instinct in the South. That may mm-hmm. be a generalization, but that is how it felt to me. Um, I don't know. At a glance, without knowing someone, you knew where someone would fit in the social hierarchy of my town. Interesting. And it was there were subtle gradations. And mm-hmm. you just knew. Interesting. Yeah, and I just think that's a way of coping with a much deeper pain and grief and loss. Um, and, you know, it's like the South lost the Civil War. Like, that's going to be something that affects this region probably as long as America exists. Because there's always this classifying mindset in the north or the west or wherever that says well at least we're better than the south you know or well you know um we may be 49th in the nation in education but at least we're not you know georgia or mississippi or what you know it's like there's always this sense of ranking yourself in america and the south is is an easy target to compare yourself to in some ways by saying oh well, we're this or that or the other better than the South. Um, and, and that's just coming from the same exact seat of pride that Ruby Turpin is doing. And I think that's why this story is so convicting to people uh, that read this and they're like, you know, judging Ruby Turpin. And then all of a sudden they realize like, oh, like I'm as judgmental as Ruby Turpin. I had that moment on the first page probably where I was like, oh, yes, yeah, a, gut, a gut punch. 
um, where she looks at the little boy taking up the whole couch and thinks, you know, someone ought to tell that little boy that he needs to get up and move and let someone else sit down. I would have that same thought, I think, in that waiting room. And I think I also would have the thoughts that she's having, like, someone really ought to clean up this waiting room. This is disgusting. There are cigarette butts and old bloody (laughs) cotton balls. I would think that same thought, too. I would probably think the thoughts about the people not being clean enough. I would think the Mm -hmm. thought about... The woman saying that her kids are both sick and she can't get them to eat anything but candy and Coca-Cola. It's her mom. It's her mom and her kid. It's talking about, like, well, so, right? The grandmother the, is saying it about her daughter and grandchild. No, no, no. no the mother's singing about about the grandmother and the child. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, because they're because they're supposed to be just alike, uh-huh. which has got this like Mr. Fortune and Mary Fortune pits like. Yet another, like, callback to another story, View of the Woods. Um, but, yeah, that sense of, like, like you said. Yeah, Mrs. Turpin thinks about them. Well, you're not, you must not be trying to make right, them eat anything right. other than that. Um, I, all, so many of these judgments she makes, that the ones that aren't based on class and race explicitly, that are, but are based on kind of initiative and, yes. um, and trying harder and doing things better. Those, I found those really relatable. And then you realize, I don't want to be like Mrs. Turpin. Yeah. You know, can, can I stop thinking that way as if I, I'm better or have a right to judge because right. I've cleaned something better than someone else? I mean, I think it's just very easy to say the things I'm good at doing are important and the things I'm not good at doing aren't as important. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because just like in, I think it was... The land Shilliner first and maybe Parker's back too. Um, I think we talked about this idea of like overcorrecting and judging the judger. Like if you judge Mrs. Turpin, then you're becoming judgmental and you're, you're being judgmental of her being judgmental. And so it's, it's very hard to take a step out of the situation instead of just like taking a step in the opposite direction because you realize like Mary Grace is just as judgmental of, of Mrs. Mm-hmm. Turpin. And so there, it's like that waiting room. I mean, I really feel like Flannery Connor, I'm sure she spent a lot of her life in waiting rooms and, you know, obviously she, she basically lived in the hospital her last year of life. And so, um, that concept of a waiting room is the perfect place for the tension to just build and build and build mm-hmm. and build it. Cause you've already got all these people waiting to be seen by the doctor who are maybe seriously ill, you know, certainly need to be there. And so, um, it's just the perfect place for something like this to happen. And, and, you know, just like the bus was, it's like yeah. the bus is meant to be a temporary thing. You know, you're not meant to ride the bus forever. You're meant to ride to where you need to get to go and you get off. And the waiting room is the same way. So it's like mm-hmm. these kind of um, places of artificial gathering. And certain, to a certain degree, different social classes are thrown together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's limited on the bus, maybe, because True. if you're rich enough, True. you don't need the bus. But um, there, are, it's like one of those locked room mysteries, almost, yeah. where you're just yeah. kind of stuck there. You can't just get off the bus at, like anytime you want to, and you can't necessarily leave the waiting room. You've got to see the doctor. So you're just stuck there with all these other people, and the tension can rise, and something can happen, and it creates drama inherently. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Mrs. Turpin looking at everybody's shoes and using the shoes to determine their worth. Um 
you know, looking at shoes has been a recurring theme. And so uh, I think about looking at shoes now as like, oh, if someone's looking at their own shoes, like, for example, the, the man, the other man is looking at his own shoes, I think. Um, I could be wrong. There's someone else in the store that's looking at their own shoes. Mm-hmm. But then here's Mrs. Turbin looking at everybody else's shoes. And so it's like if you're looking at your own shoes, you could be praying. And if you're looking at other people's shoes, you're looking down on them. Because it's like, that's the that's the one place, even if you're two feet tall, if you're Josephine's height, at, you know, in whatever, <laughs> July 31st, August 2021, you could still look at my shoes and be looking down on me. So it's that idea of, like, you can judge someone by their feet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just that concept of, like, Ruby Turpin really wants to go by... Oh, even if they're in a silver ball gown, like if they're wearing Girl Scout shoes, I'm, you know, I'm better than them. And and she feels like she's omniscient, I think. Yeah, she's, well, like yeah. Like it says, there was nothing you could tell her about people like them that she didn't already know at yeah. one point. And it says, this is the, ver- the first two sentences of the story. The doctor's waiting room, which was very small, was almost full when the Turpins entered. And Mrs. Turpin, who was very large, made it look even smaller by her presence. She stood looming at the head of the magazine table set in the center of it, a living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it makes it feel like she has this godlike presence in the room. Mm-hmm. She's too big for the room. And, I mean, she's supposed to weigh 180 pounds, which, you know, let weight be what it is. But, you know, in, in, in the terms of, of Flannery O'Connor's time, 180 pounds was a very large woman. And you were likely to be at least moneyed in some respects because you couldn't afford that much food if you were very poor. Like all of the, all, all of the white trash people in the story are all really thin. Um, I think the black guy that comes in, I think he's, he's supposed thin, to be really yeah. thin. And so there's this contrast of everybody's thin with the exception of Mary Grace mm-hmm. and Mrs. Turpin. Uh, Mary Grace, t- two things spring to mind from what you just said. One is that living demonstration that the room was inadequate and ridiculous. I think that she's trying to project that all the time, that other people are inadequate compared to her. Um, and she doesn't feel 100% certain of it. I mean, you, you get the impression that her sense of self is a little shaky, and she has to keep reinforcing it by yes. comparing herself to other people and by saying... Oh, thank God I am what I am. I wouldn't even actually want to have more than I... She's so insistent. I wouldn't even actually want to have more than I have. Yeah. I, I have the perfect amount of things, like, about her farm and everything yeah. like that. I think that's a way that you protect yourself instead of saying, well, some people do have more than I do, and, you know, I do have to live with the fact that some people are more prosperous than I am and some people are more successful than I am, she says. Um, we get a little of everything. It's no use in having more than you can handle yourself with help like it is. So she has this whole set of reasons, which mainly include having to deal with her black helpers and workers that she doesn't even want more than she has. But you, you can see that her power is a little shaky, even with the fact that she knows she's being fake with her black workers and trying to make them feel loved. They're being fake in return and trying to make her feel loved. She knows the whole thing's a sham in both directions. Same thing happens even with the guy in the waiting room, the, the, um, black, 
um, like delivery. the delivery guy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He, um, she, he's just standing there and she says, you'll see that, you see that button there, boy, you can punch that and she'll come. She's probably in the back somewhere. And he says, is that right? As <laughs> if he had never seen the button before. And he says, she's sometime out. It's like, he probably comes there every day or exactly. something from the drugstore and knows the drill, but he just humors her condescendingly, I think. Yeah, a, a, like placating mm-hmm. in, in a very like, you know, I, I'm I'm doing this so I can get out of talking to you, mm-hmm. not so I can invite you to talk me talk to me more. And I, I think a lot of people are like that. It's like one of the things I've learned about people is they don't actually want to be talking to me, <laughs> and and I can I'm getting better at telling the difference. And I would much rather someone just tell me to f off, you know, because it's like. Then I know where you are. And it's like, I'm not going to judge you because you say that. But then if you mislead me into thinking you care about what I'm saying or you you care about me knowing something about you, and then when you ghost me or whatever, that has a worse effect than telling me to F off. I think we all go through life trying to guess at what each other are thinking and feeling. And And it's hard and we're not always right. Because you're talking about sometimes you're, you'll be in conversation with someone. I'm very alert to this. Oftentimes, um, you'll be in conversation with someone, and you'll realize their eyes are sort of wandering up above your head instead of looking at you, yes. and they seem to be maybe checking their watch or kind of just shifting around a lot. And I always take that as a sign that they don't want to talk to me anymore, and kind of give them an out from the conversation. But it is sort of unfair that we do that to each other instead of just saying, "Hey, I need to go." Right. Just just end it if you want to end yeah. it. I mean, when I was reading about that delivery um, guy, I to me it felt like he was just going along with what she was saying, but he was maybe internally thinking, yeah, I know there's a button there. I come here every day. I come here more often yeah. than you do. Like, leave me alone. The button doesn't do anything. She comes when she comes. I feel like that's what yeah. I'd be thinking if yeah. I were in his position, probably, and then I would probably react the same way as him and be like, oh, yeah, you're right, there is a button, and I would hit it just to, play, like you said, placate the person. Yeah. It's interesting, for as small of a room as this is, like, I get the impression that we're recording this in my office in Allgood Hall at Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia. Um, I get the impression that waiting room's not much bigger than the room we're in right now. Yeah. And so... For a room this small, there are a lot of characters in this story. You've got the doctor, you've got the nurses, at least two nurses, because it takes two nurses to hold down Mary Grace. Um, the secretary, the the I'm just gonna call him the deliverer, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I actually think he serves a purpose that is like a a, a, a spiritual purpose rather than, I mean, otherwise, why on earth is he in the story? Like, you know, he he has to be there for a reason. Uh, in addition to just delivering two cups of medicine for 85 cents or whatever it is that it costs. So, um, so you've got those people that work there or work, you know, work a job that brings them there. And then you've got, uh, Mrs. Turpin, Claude, Mary Grace's mother, Mary Grace, the, uh, woman in the pumps, uh, Mrs. Finley, uh, the, the white trash mother, the grandmother, and the son whose nose ran unchecked. <laughs> so, and then you've got this man that's there, and who's he there with? 
He's just there. I he's think just he's alone. There. Okay. He barely registers. He's asleep. Okay. Much of the story, or, or pretending to be asleep, so he doesn't have to give up his seat. She thinks. Oh yeah. But then he wakes up okay. and laughs. Yeah. At, at Claude. Yeah. At Claude cracks a joke right. about. Oh, about white-faced and yes, words, and then yes. this man laughs mm-hmm. at the joke. Yeah. So, so that's, I think that's everybody in the room. Um, but just when you think about that many characters in a story that's about 25 pages long, it, it uh, and and her her black workers and, on their farm. So that's four more people. Um, that's a lot of characters for this story. They were hard to keep up with, yeah. to me. The first time I read it, particularly, um, just wait, who who's in this room? <laughs> Trying yeah. to picture the room, and so um, you know, it's it's just interesting to think about like everybody involved in this story matters, but we really only get Ruby Turpin as a central. Like, I, if I had to say who are the central characters, I'd say really just Mrs. Turpin. And everyone else is secondary. Mary Grace, with, is yeah, Mary Grace is like the is like the you know the foil or the, the, yeah, the foil of the agent of Grace. <laughs> she's the um, she's the cause for the conflict. And really, if you had to say it, like Mrs. Turpin is the cause for the conflict, and the conflict just she catalyzes the conflict with her with her statements, and Mary Grace just loses it, and she's trying to read a book called Human Development, and it's like. You know, here is this waiting room in presumably 1963 where, you know, the same problems that have plagued society for all time are still there, which is just Mm -hmm. pride, judgment, taking the role that only God should take, uh, not loving your neighbor as yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And the story does highlight that, that if you get rid of racism, let's say that stopped being a category by which people were cruel to each other. Um, there would be something to fill that vacuum. Other ways to classify each other and be cruel to one another. And that's, sadly, that's what we're kind of wrestling with right now. I, I really feel like the the true racism of the 19th century is almost completely eradicated. I mean, I I think that in in 21st century... You know, 2021 America, the things that that um, that challenge or the hurdles that are placed before people of color in America are largely either class based. Like, for example, if you're black and you can't get a loan from a bank, it's because of your financial standing, not your race, if that makes sense. And the financial standing probably has some some connection to a historical exactly you know oppression in our country going back a long way and has deep roots and everything yeah it's not it's yeah. not it's not uh, isolated from it but it's not simple yeah to wrap your head around and straightforward in a way that it was right earlier whereas like you know even in the 1950s uh, a white person and a black person with the exact same credit score, the white person would get the loan, the black person wouldn't, because there was still what we call systemic racism or institutional racism. But but now I just think there's so much, we're so on our guard against racism that I, I genuinely don't believe a single person is getting turned down for a loan 
by their color, if their credit score is good enough or if they have enough, um, you know, collateral or what, whatever they have um, to, to secure the loan. Like, you know, LeBron James isn't going to get a worse loan than Tom Brady. Like, rich people get rich people loans, poor people get poor people loans, or not, no loans at all. So, so it, racism know. maybe comes into play more with um, less official avenues, yeah. maybe. This idea that there are laws in place against discrimination yeah. in certain yeah. arenas. Um, but then I read an article about Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, basically a kind of, I don't know if it's an informal experiment, but someone did an experiment and made a profile that was, they're pretty much identical profiles, but one was white and one was black in terms yeah. of like the picture and then the name kind of associations. And they would basically try to stay in the same properties and sometimes they would get turned down as the, the black profile and get accepted as the white profile. And Airbnb, you know, as a corp company said, Oh, well, of course we don't endorse that kind of behavior, but it's not systemic. Right. In fact, we can try that. to have policies in place, yeah. but it's just individual people yeah. who probably would say, no, 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 I'm not racist. I wouldn't do that. Right. Just have some sort of leaning or inclination that leads yeah. them to do that. That would be incidental or episodic. Like I would think that that would be uh, specific in- instances rather than a blanket yeah. situation or policy. It's the difference between systemic and institutional. Yes. And then there's the, the cruelty in people's hearts. Right. Or even just, if it's not cruelty, because the people who own those Airbnb properties probably aren't doing anything cruel on purpose right. in this kind of active way. Not even to the extent of saying the types of things that the people in this waiting room say. Yeah. Um, but they might just have this nervousness about people of another race than themselves that they just don't even know how to account for in their own yeah. minds. And we've stayed with, you know, people of different races in some of the Airbnbs that we've stayed in, and, and we've we've loved every single one of them with, with, the, with the exception of the Burrow uh, Airbnb where, bless their hearts, they just... They they were not ready for prime time, and it was it was a company, so it wasn't uh it wasn't that we were staying that in the house of someone who either owned the property or lived in the property with with the room. It was like this company had bought up a bunch of apartments mm-hmm. and like used them for Airbnbs, which and, is not in the spirit of Airbnb, really. Exactly, and so um, so just that concept of like where are we now versus where, you know, where was America in, in this, the, the context of this story? I think we have, we have ironed out a lot of the wrinkles of race in our country, but just like with, you know, a tablecloth with one wrinkle in it, it's like as soon as you've ironed out all the wrinkles except one, that one is going to really catch your eye. I'm not saying that there's like, oh, there's one, one institute, <laughs> there's one instance of racism every year in America. No, there's still... There still is racism, but I think that we have pushed it largely out of the public sphere. Certainly, you know, no one is, like, um, proudly in the KKK. Like, I'm sure that if you're in the KKK, you're on a government list. Like, you know, everybody that chooses to go down that path is already, like, on very thin ice with the government, and they, you know they put the Stan Beamans of the world into like white nationalist groups to try and infiltrate them. And, 
and you know get them on racketeering charges or whatever so that they can take out the whole like the rico case um you know trying the entire mafia as one trial um shout out to uh what's his uh harvey dunn yeah i almost said aaron eckhart but i was like that's that's the actor's name um so as we look at this story you know it can be shocking how 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 um how hateful Ruby Turpin is as she thinks because she's, I would say she's offensive. Um, may, you know, maybe more uh, mortally offensive by 2021 standards, but I would say certainly offensive, uh, in her professions out, out in her, her vocalized professions, but her interior thoughts Mm -hmm. are much more troubling. And I think that that's just, Flannery O'Connor has such an insight into the human heart to understand that that is what makes you who you are. And Jesus says this. He's like, it's not what is on the outside that what you put in your body mm-hmm. that makes you corrupt. It's what comes from the inside. And the things that he lists are, are pretty indicative of the, the things that corrupt the, the people in Flannery O'Connor's stories. And, of course, not by coincidence. Like, she's she's just riffing on the same exact ideas that Jesus has already taught in his, in his ministry. I feel on shaky ground, even talking about the way that race is handled in these stories sometimes, because I try to think to myself, well, if I were reading this story and instead of it using such a denigrating language against, you know, black people, it was using really denigrating language about women or, as a category, you know, this yeah. very, there was a very misogynist character who was just being really cruel and unkind, or if it were about Christians as a category of people, which I, I mean, yes, in Flannery O'Connor's story, sometimes people are very denigrating of Christians, but you know that the writer isn't. And so therefore it kind of softens it for me. But I think, I hope that that also shines through when she's having a character say or think very racist things I hope that it shines through that just just as she'll have characters say very anti-christian things and she's herself is not anti-christian that um she is not endorsing those views by having these care in fact these the char- these characters are ripe for um deep 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 humiliation so that they yeah. can learn to be different uh, to me the key in this story is not we should all learn to respect each other people as much as we respect ourselves. It's more like I need to be able to admit that I'm trash (laughs) instead of like pointing the finger at other people. And it sounds kind of harsh and ugly, I think, especially to a modern ear, but there's that moment toward the end where she thinks she's railing against God and she, she's saying, like, how am I a hog? How am I like a hog? And she says, if you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then to God. Mm-hmm. And then she says, if trash is what you wanted, why didn't you make me trash? Mm-hmm. It's almost like she's saying, it'd be easier for me to be humble. If you want me to be this humble, you want me to really be this poor in spirit, you should have made me worse, and then it would be easy to be humble because I would know I was just nothing. But I'm not nothing. I'm a good yeah. woman. I've worked hard. I've done a good job. And then she says, I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy, lounge about the sidewalks all day drinking root beer, dip snuff (laughs) and spit in every puddle and have it all over my face. I could be nasty. And she's painting a picture of a person being degraded like a hog, I think, is how she's thinking of it. But 
it made me think about this idea of like, I could quit working and take it easy and be filthy. That's kind of, as a Christian, kind of what you have to come to is say, you know what, I can't really work myself into being as good and spotless and righteous and awesome as God is and as I was created to be. I just can't do it. So I just have to stop working and admit that I'm filthy. Yeah. That's a key to entering the kingdom of heaven. Well, and that's what she says. This is on my page 215. It's about five pages from the end. She says, why me? She rumbled. It's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't given to and break my back to the bone every day working and do for the church. And it's just funny. (laughs) She's so judgmental. And then she like jumps to like, and I, and, and I go to church and, and I think that, that, you know, every generation of the church has its own log in its eye. And, um, you know, I think the log that she sees and is, is, is like blinding her so, so fiercely is that sense of, like, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. So how I treat people can't change my status because she's thinking of her eternal status the way that she's thinking of her earthly status, that she's a lady because she knows how to recognize a lady. I think that's the epitome of what makes a lady a lady is knowing how to uh, project that she's a lady no matter what's in her head and how to notice the difference between a lady and a woman. And that, like, Ruby Turpin is like, I'm better than that woman because she doesn't know that she's trash, and I do know that she is. And it it's like, it's such an odd concept to think, like, why would it be so gratifying to be like, I'm, I'm so, thank God I'm not like them, like, it's like that man who goes to pray at the temple, right? Yeah, the Pharisee and the tax about, collector. Who says, "Thank God, I'm not like these unrighteous men." Yeah. Um, it's just, I think it's just a natural instinct to walk around and get annoyed with people or just turned off by people. You know, just mm, I don't like that about whatever yeah. different aspects of people, their behavior, their appearance whatever and then say well I'm glad I'm not like that and it feels like a way to help me make sense of the world and understand where you fit in and who you are to a degree but it just is just an ugliness to it and you you, I'm forgetting every time I think that way that God created that person God cherishes that person yeah and that Jesus was equally willing to get on the cross for you know, a mass murderer as he was for Mother Teresa. Like, Mother Teresa's sins made Jesus have to die in equal measure. Like, any sin has to be dealt with. So so no matter how innocent you think you are or someone else is, if that person's a human being, they're a sinner. Like, that's just... That's just reality. And that's, that's part of what I think Flannery O'Connor does so well is she... She gives the reality of the spiritual world and the truths of eternity in such a uh, vivid picture. Like, this story is such a vivid picture that you can't imagine it's imagined. You think it's just reported, right? And that's, that's one of the things she does so well is she just reports people. And 
um, what he was mentioning, like, it's, it's hard not to think Flannery O'Connor might have had some of these same thoughts. But I really think what Flannery O'Connor did was she painted portraits of people and she painted a self-portrait at the same time. And so this story is actually, to some extent, a self-portrait. Like, I see Mary Grace as being mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor-esque, especially her younger self that was like, you know, I, I would, I can't remember what the phrase was, but it's like, basically, I would like stare someone down if they even looked at me. Mm-hmm. Um, she's And she's in that tradition of young women who are more educated than yep. Joy Holga, more educated than the people around them, or... And these young women whose names start with Mary, who are just fierce. Yes. Um, and and angry. And she seems to have had that fierce, angry streak herself. Yeah. But, you know, I was struck by the fact that even Mrs. Turpin doesn't seem particularly self-aware. As much as she thinks about herself and where she fits and everything. Um, like, she says she has a great disposition in the days never dawn that I couldn't find something to laugh at. She paints herself and projects herself to the world as being really cheerful and um, positive and keeping a good attitude and things like that. But we find out first of all, that she fakes that attitude quite a bit, like with her workers say, how y'all doing today? And she doesn't, she doesn't want to be talking to them. And then I love the part where, she was in a you know really bad mood after that attack and just getting more and more angry, and Claude observed, "You look like you might have swallowed a mad dog," <laughs> and it says he paid no attention to her humors. And I thought, oh, okay, so she gets moody like this periodically, and yeah. he doesn't find it unusual. So her projection of herself as being this really positive, joyful, pers- pleasant person. Yeah is inaccurate. Well, and and also her projection of, you know, her saying, and break my back to the bone every day working, she makes ice water. That's literally all she does. She does not do any work on the farm. That's why they have the black help. That's why Claude got kicked in the leg by the cow. Like, Claude and it says, it says one of the black people works and the other three stay in the truck. Do you notice that? Yeah, there, there's one last task to do, I think, and one of them jumps out and helps Claude do it at the end of the day, and everybody else just sits in the truck, I think it says. Until he was ready to take them home. Um, no, it said every afternoon after Claude brought the hands in, one of the boys helped him put out the hay, and the rest... Okay, I yeah. see, I see. So so it's like... They've been yeah, working. Yeah, I see. So yeah. there's like a last task every day that one of them has to do with Claude. And... I take it that she's thinking, I, I broke my back working with black people. She has like, it's so exhausting to just be nice to them. Yes, yes, exactly. And she's like, oh, you have to suck up to them, you have to bring them water. I mean, it sounds like she's, to me, she's like she's complaining about just being a basically decent employee or just being, sort of yeah. being friendly and bringing them something to drink. Whereas, I really feel like if if you are free in the spirit of Christ you will love being nice to anybody. I mean, I hope that people listening to this are like, man, Adam Deal is really nice to me because I try to be. Like, I, I want the Holy Spirit to come through me. I don't want to just be like, oh, well, Adam's a nice guy, but I don't know about God. I want you to see, like, God is kind. 
God is patient. God is long-suffering, and he doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Like, he delights in things that are good and doesn't rejoice in things that are evil. Like, when people say God is love, that's what they mean. They mean the love of the Scripture that, that we see, okay, it's not loving to be, um, you know, like, like um, uh, permissive of someone. Right. If someone is in error or certainly in sin, the loving thing to do is to correct them, to discipline them, to walk with them and get them out of that. It's not loving to be live and let live. Exactly. Live and let die. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, just that concept that what is Ruby Turpin doing to, to all these other people? Well, she's projecting a falseness. Yeah, and pleasant is a a word that's used several yeah. times in the story. Pleasant and nice are such mm-hmm. insipid words. Yes. Because they go about an inch deep. And yeah. the pleasant lady, the same lady who's called the stylish lady, Mary Grace's mother. Yeah. Um, the fact that she's called the pleasant lady is significant, I think, because she seems quite pleasant to Mrs. Turpin, but she's very passive aggressively unkind to her daughter. Several times, yeah, starting yeah. on the second page of the story, I thought it was pointed when Mrs. Turpin, I think Mrs. Turpin is preempting criticism, and she sits down and says, I wish I could reduce. It's a kind of, you know, you can't be thinking that I'm fat because I'm going to go ahead and say that I need to lose weight, yeah. and therefore you can't judge me. But the, the pleasant, stylish lady says, oh, you aren't fat. And that pointed, italicized you. I think it's just a little hint of like, some people are fat, but you aren't fat. And it says just slightly later, next to her was a fat girl of 18 or 19, pointing to the fact that her daughter is fat. And then later, it becomes a lot more clear that she's being passive aggressive toward her daughter because she starts talking about her daughter as if she's talking about another person who's not present in the room. Mm -hmm. It's so terrible. Oh, my gosh. Read read that. It says, Her mother's mouth grew thin and tight. I think the worst thing in the world, she said, is an ungrateful person. To have everything and not appreciate it. I know a girl, (laughs) (laughs) she said, who has parents who would give her anything. And it's like, you realize it starts getting a little too specific. A little brother who loves her dearly, who is getting a good education, who wears the best clothes, but who can never say a kind word to anyone, who never smiles, who just criticizes and complains all day long. And then Claude pipes in hilariously, is she too old to paddle? (laughs) Because <laughs> when I was growing up, that's what you called it when you would spank a kid, paddling yeah. them. You got a paddling at school, at my a school, if you got in trouble. Anyway, is she too old to paddle? Claude asked. The girl's face was almost purple. Yes, yeah. the lady said. I'm afraid there's nothing to do but leave her to her folly. Someday she'll wake up and it'll be too late. And then it gets even worse because Mrs. Turpin chimes in. Never hurt anyone to smile. Just makes you feel better all over. And so, poor, I say poor Mary Grace here because even if Mary Grace is a brat, being spoken about as if you're not in the room by your mother in this condescending, aggressive, but indirect way would be maddening. My face would be turning purple too. Mm. I can see, especially if her daughter is there because she's in any way psychologically troubled 
which it seems like might be the case. Right. And then to do this to her is really mean, I think. Yeah. Well, it, it makes me think of an incident my freshman year of college where my friend Casey Yud, now Casey Yud cracks her, the cookie, uh, I'm just going to call her the Picasso of cookies. Um, <laughs> she was just being frowny-faced all day, and I was like, Casey, smile. It only takes four muscles. She goes, it, only, it doesn't take any muscles to keep a straight face at them. <laughs> <laughs> and just that, that, like, that level of, like, I am not smiling, you know, to, to save my life. You know, it's like I was, like, having fun with her, and she knew it, but she she just was so hilarious. Like, she immediately had something ready to go that was way funnier, you know. And to me, Mary, Mary Grace is just, it's like, she isn't going to quip back. She's, she just throws the book. Like, it's like she, she doesn't, um, she doesn't engage with it at all. It's very strange. All she does is like put her lips out and she, it's like, she's like getting ready to like, I don't even know, like, like sneeze and turn inside out completely. Like it's a Ren and Stimpy cartoon. It does almost seem like I can see why you'd read it and think she's demon possessed or something because she's making the strangest faces. I thought the description of the face she makes is so weird and funny, but I actually read in one of, um, Flannery O'Connor's letters about the story that someone has suggested to her that maybe Ruby is evil or there's a devil or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, and she said, no, no, you know, I wasn't intending that. Um, I'll, actually, I'll find it. Yeah. Um, but that Flannery O'Connor said, anyway, you go ahead and talk. I'm a little so, bit. <laughs> uh, I'm going to contrast uh, Mary Grace to the kid that's there um, with the white trash woman. Yeah. Says, I'd almost rather have him sick with the white trash woman said. Wrenching the attention back to herself. <laughs> He's so mean when he ain't. Look like some children just take natural to meanness. It's some gets bad when they get sick, but he was the opposite. <laughs> Too sick and turned good. He don't give me no trouble now. It's me waiting to see the doctor, she said. I just thought that was interesting. Like, you would assume a kid whose nose is running un- unchecked is there to see the doctor, but no, it's his mom that's there to see the doctor. And so... I thought he... Does he have an ulcer? Uh... I have to look back. Someone, someone has an ulcer From in addition to drinking Claude. drinking Coca-Cola and eating... Yeah, like yeah, you're ulcer. right, you're right. But yeah, Claude has a leg ulcer. And so, just that concept of like... Like, some kids get sick and, and you know, turn good. And I would say, like, Flannery O'Connor actually got more faithful as she got sicker and sicker. Whereas some people, you know, lose their faith entirely with their sicknesses or, or diseases or whatever. And, um, and it's just interesting to see that contrast between the little boy who's like, whose head is in the lap of the grandmother the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like there's this kind of um, familial unity, except it's kind of skipping a generation. <laughs> and so, you know, they both drink Coca-Cola, like not Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, uh, which is such a, I mean, such a beautiful Southern turn of phrase. Um, but that's just, you know, not to wax poetic forever about Flannery O'Connor, but she was so gifted in the, the dialects of Georgia and, and just the South in general that 
I know exactly how someone would say that, you know, like all they, all they have is Coca-Cola and candy. Like, you know, it, it just, it rolls right off the tongue and it's probably much better than I just did it. But, um, but just that, that she, she captures it. Like I said, like it's, like it's a really detailed portrait. And so everybody that she's painting in this, it feels like it's a photograph level realism rather than something that's just like an impression of someone. You just mentioned um, Mary Grace and the little boy, you know, looking at that part where Claude makes the joke about white faced in words mm. that you're going to have, if you have people basically in, you know, intermixing the races enough, that's what you'll have. And everyone in the room laughs at the joke, except a few key people um, the woman who's been called the white trash woman doesn't laugh at the joke, and Mary Grace doesn't laugh at the joke. Um, these characters, the white trash characters, don't laugh, and Mary Grace doesn't laugh. And I think it's because they understand that they, by virtue of being fat and ugly or being considered trashy, that they are considered white faced in words. Mm-hmm. Because the story is pointing out that Southerners were really thinking of in words, uh, that word is like a categorization of anyone that they just wanted to put beneath them at the bottom of the social hierarchy. But you could kind of get, we've talked about this before, you could get to the bottom of that social ladder through just not living up to the standard of being a lady or, you know, a gentleman. Yeah. Um, And... So that's what you see here. I'll go ahead and, while I'm thinking of it and have found it, read this little section from a letter. This is to Betty Hester. Yeah. Um, it says, I wasn't thinking of Mary Grace as the devil. <laughs> but then the whole story just sort of happened, though it took me about eight weeks to write it. It was one of those rare ones in which every gesture gave me great pleasure in the writing, from Claude pulling up his pants leg to show where the cow kicked him right on through. That's really early in the story when Claude lifts up his leg. And I actually thought that um, a classier person than Claude would never show his ulcer to everyone in True. the waiting room. True. That that was one more subtle moment of showing that the Turpins are either at the very lowest edge of classy or at the very highest edge of kind of white trashy. Farming mm-hmm. itself... It's right on that border, I think, and that whether farming is classy or not is being negotiated in this story with that discussion of the hogs, whether hogs are too filthy to work with, um, owning land versus working someone else's land. It's difficult to figure out where you fit. But she said, I wasn't thinking of Mary Grace as the devil. And she also says, "Um, the last time I went to the doctor here, Ruby and Claude were in there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was taken with the conversation. It was much better than anything I had in the story. Um, And then she says in another letter a few days later that um, she also didn't mean for Ruby to be evil, certainly didn't mean for Ruby to end the story evil, although that's how her friend Catherine Carver had had interpreted it when she Mm -hmm. read the story, that Ruby was still evil at the end. And she said, no, no, that's not what I intended. Well, it's... (laughs) The... The way it ends, we'll talk about the ending in a minute, but the way it ends, to me, okay, there are two characters that need a revelation in this story, one of which is Mrs. Turpin, Ruby, obviously. 
The other is Mary Grace. And I think about just some of the things that I noticed, you know, Mrs. Turpin felt an awful pity for the girl, though she thought it was one thing to be ugly and another to act ugly. You know, I mentioned this in the Lance Helena first. Sometimes you can see someone's uh, disadvantage or, or someone's disability or someone's pain. Uh, you can see it, and you're more likely to, hopefully more likely to be empathetic to them or patient with them or something. But if you can't see it, a lot of times you get turned off first before you can be empathetic because it might come across not as like a club foot, but as like someone screaming at you or someone ghosting you or someone, um, you know, I don't know, like, like talking down to you condescendingly, you know? And so I thought about that. And then I thought about this, this concept that it's <laughs> says to help anybody out that needed it was her philosophy of life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need, whether they were white or black, trash or decent. And I actually think she allows Mary Grace to have a fit, right? Like she has an explosion. And maybe this is what Mary Grace needed to realize she has an anger problem. She has a problem with judgment in her heart. She, she is condescending to other people in her mind the same way that Mrs. Turpin is. And that she needed to see... Like, by saying, you're just an old warthog from hell, like, that she's, (laughs) much like many bullies, whatever they call you, they feel about themselves. It's remarkable and impressive that Mrs. Turpin doesn't shut down in the face of that extreme criticism, but takes it in. Mm -hmm. I mean, she lets it get to her, and she wrestles with it. And she takes it as a message from God. When's the mm-hmm. last time I was criticized? And granted, I mean, she does buck against it, yeah. but she she wrestles with it. Yeah. And I mean, it's one thing to be criticized by someone who knows you really well, who you're going to stay in a relationship with, like your spouse. You might, I mean, you still wrestle against it, buck it, get angry, but eventually you kind of have to just, grapple with it to some degree. Yeah. But if you're criticized extremely harshly in these stark terms by a stranger, to take that as some sort of revelation from God that you got to deal with instead of just the ravings of a lunatic takes a lot of um, strength in a way. It's remarkable. Yeah. I think that, like when he said, she doesn't... Uh, react to it, she absorbs it. Um, and I think that that's, you know, there are three ways to react to criticism. There's to react immediately to it and, and you know, get, get combative or get contrary or get, you know, s- throw your own criticism at that person that's criticized you. Or you can absorb it and just have to kind of, you know, slowly let it sink into you. Or you just are oblivious to it. And... It's actually worse to be oblivious to criticism, especially if it's coming from an agent of grace, because yeah. Ruby Turpin really, you know, I, I think in in reality, she does help Mary Grace, and she helps Mary Grace's mother. It's like Mary Grace's mother needed Mary Grace to 
you know, have to get tranquilized. I mean, she gets tranquilized because yeah. she gets so out of control. She tries to kill a woman. And the mother is just holding her. It seems like yeah. the mother's sitting on the floor. It seems like she's maybe been humbled and realized mm-hmm. that the way that she was behaving toward her daughter, um, she was being as critical toward her daughter as Shepard was being to Norton. I think, yeah, in, that's in her good own point. way, just that's a good point. Look, seeing everything wrong in her, not seeing yep. anything redeeming in her, yep. just harping on it all the time. And it seems like by the end, she's, you know, realized yeah. how vulnerable her daughter is and that she shouldn't be uh, basically, for, for as strong as her daughter seems, she also is is weak and yeah. needs to be treated kindly, maybe. And so, you know, Ruby does a service to Mary Grace by provoking her. Um, and I obviously think that Ruby gets her own opportunity to see her sin. Um, and like I said, the sin is coming from something more general than racism, but to which racism is a symptom. And it's the idea that in, in a sense of pride, you get to determine the order of people. And like I said in the last episode, or in the Lance Helena first, I think it was, we almost always put ourselves at the top of that list. Um, and that's why <laughs> the coaches poll in NCAA football is hilarious because it's like, well, of course, Nick Saban's going to vote for Alabama first and Kirby Smart's going to vote for Georgia first. Like, uh-huh. wh- how could there ever be a number one team before the season starts? Because it'd be like, okay, every coach voted one time and they all voted for their own teams. Maybe they – I know with the U.S. News and World Report about colleges, they – they get those rankings for like reputation score. That's a huge aspect of the rankings, and they get it by just polling college heads. And so, same yeah. idea there is yeah. you say, "Oh well, you know, of course we're at the top." Yeah. But they take off the top and the bottom mm-hmm. scores to try to make it try and, yeah. a little more even. So, if you either have a vendetta or a special yes. bias yes. toward a school, they try to eliminate that. Interesting. Yeah. Tangent, sorry. Yeah, well, and, you know, semi-tangent, uh, whatever, addendum to tangent, uh, Steve Spurrier used to always vote for Duke until they lost. So they would they would get a, co- a vote from the coach's poll, maybe not into the top, top 25, depending on how many other people voted for him, but, like, they wouldn't fall out of the voting until they lost. So um, I thought that was just, like, a, a, that that's, like, a very <laughs> genteel mindset of like, I'm going to vote for the school that hired me first as a coach, as a way of honoring them. And I do think that there was an honor and shame culture in the South yeah. up until recently. Like I, I think the, the, the idea of a lady is the height of honor and an N word is the height of shame. That, that was the, the zeitgeist in the South from the civil war until <sighs> probably like, probably until the end of integration in the like early 70s. And at that point, it's not that the zeitgeist has changed so much, but it's that it really feels different. Like, I feel like living in the South in 2021 is so different from the South that my parents grew up in, certainly that Whitney's parents grew up in. You know, they're, they're growing up in Georgia, which is even further south than Tennessee. But to me, the zeitgeist is still high tide in um, Flannery O'Connor's time because it hasn't changed the minds of people yet. Mm -hmm. It it might have changed the laws, 
which the laws are going to change before the enforcement of the laws is going to change. And the enforcement of the laws is going to change before the normalization of the laws is going to change. And the normalization is going to change before people really start letting go of, like, almost like once it's become normalized, then you start letting go of it like it's going to go back to the way it was. Like, I don't think anyone in 2021 thinks we're going to go back to, like, segregated schools. Like, that's not that long ago. That's only two generations ago. Whereas no one, you know, no one in America thinks we're going to go back to slavery. Like, that's that's a settled course. The thing about an honor-shame culture, I'm glad you brought that up, um, because I've heard podcasts and read things about the South being an honor culture and that that is still hung around in the South longer than other parts of the country and that we brought it to America from places like Scotland, this, this high sense of honor yeah. um, that needs defending um, and that people earn respect. You don't just give it to them by virtue of their just being a human being. I think there's some real downsides to having an honor shame culture. I yes. think one thing it does allow for is shame, which can be, <laughs> yeah healthy yeah sometimes like i think that ruby turpin has a healthy shame in this story right um when she stops thinking of herself as a lady who should be honored and who will honor herself at every opportunity and she starts feeling ashamed and saying maybe i'm like a pig am i like a hog maybe i am she feels this deep shame and i mean the kind of shame where you want to cover yourself up because you feel humiliated like Adam and Eve wanted to cover themselves up because they they sinned and they realized it. And it's helpful to her to feel that sense of shame. And she imagines, or has a vision, I wouldn't say she imagines it, she has that vision of um, the kind of march to heaven and people like her, the people who found themselves to be, to have great dignity on earth, um, they're in the end of the column because they didn't have enough shame on earth. And I'm not right. saying you live with shame forever when you're in Christ. I'm saying that you have to just have some initial realization yeah. that you des- you deserve shame, you should feel shame, and that that recurs, and then you yeah. repent again. But we, yeah. shame is a very important part of the Christian life. And shame is, people are trying to do away with shame in large part or say, only I think maybe every era says only certain things really deserve shame and we right, just change right. what they are. Like C.S. Lewis talks about how in the Middle Ages being a coward was considered mm-hmm. extremely shameful. Not being a warrior, not being ready to kill yeah. was considered shameful in many circles. Um, whereas chastity was considered a very important virtue in the Middle Ages. Well, in the modern world, it's the opposite. Yeah. We think of chastity as being nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter at all in the modern world, not even a virtue. Um, in fact, some people think it's shameful to be too chaste or yeah. to think of yourself in those terms. And we think of violence as being a great vice, something to be greatly yeah. ashamed of. Um, in I think, you know, in many cases at least. And so I think the shame that Ruby feels helps her. Yeah, and I agree. shame in general can be fruitful, and we've almost tried to pathologize shame in the modern world. And I think yeah. that's part of what Flannery O'Connor saw that um, psychology was tending toward, and Ooh, she yes. really um, thought yes. that that was in direct contradiction to what the gospel calls for. 
Yeah, I'm going to do a couple of points on that. So the only thing Mary Grace says in the story, other than you're an old war- warthog from hell, it says, I see you're, re- you're reading a book there. The girl continued to stare and pointedly did not answer. Her mother blushed at this rudeness. The lady asked you a question, Mary Grace, she said under her breath. I have ears, Mary Grace said. That's the only thing Mary Grace says until she says that to Mrs. Turpin. And I thought about the phrase that Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And Mary Grace is not, (laughs) she is not gracious. (laughs) She's not, well, she's not graceful. She's not graceful to uh, Mrs. Turpin. She doesn't give her what she doesn't deserve. She gives her what she does deserve in her own eyes and probably in many readers' eyes too. It's like, shut this woman up. So I can, but she's doing it so she can read her book rather than like, it comes across like she wants her to shut up so that she can read about human development, which is mm-hmm. actually like, like social that's science, a social yeah, science, social book science that she's reading, book. Yeah. And, um, she, maybe she's like Sarah Ruth in the last story yes. we talked about. She's an agent of grace without being a recipient of grace. Exactly. And so that made me think about, um, there is this passage early ish on, in the story, and I'm... Here we go. Okay, so this is on 196 of the, uh, of the, the you know, everything that rises must convert. It's about six pages in. It says... I'm just going to read the, <laughs> the long paragraph. It says, Next to the child's mother was a red-headed youngish woman reading one of her magazines and working a piece of chewing gum, hell for leather, as Claude would say. Miss Turpin could not see the woman's feet. She was not tr- white trash, just common. I thought it was interesting. It was like, she can't see her feet, which is weird. Like, how is she, how can she not see them? They're in a tiny room together. But I thought that was an interesting concept. Like, she can't judge her because she can't see her feet. And that God, like, prevents her from seeing that. Okay, so it says, Sometimes Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at, n- at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most colored people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Then next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash. Then above them were the homeowners, and above them the home and land owners, to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land. But here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her, for some of the people with a lot of money were common and ought to be below she and Claude, and some of the people who had good blood had lost their money and had to rent, and then there were the color, there were colored people who owned their homes and land as well. There was a colored dentist in town who had two red Lincolns and a swimming pool and a farm with registered white-faced cattle on it. Usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head, and she would dream they were all crammed in together in a boxcar, being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. I'm glad you brought that up. So Whitney, talk to us about that concept of putting the people together, sending them to the concentration camp to be killed. Yeah, that the classification system is breaking down, and then that makes her think about what if everyone's damned, or what if everyone is unworthy, unfit, not the master race, you know, that she has this anxiety sort of 
latent within her, maybe I would be one of the people who got sent away. Maybe I would be one of the people who weren't considered good enough. What, what if everybody can't measure up? There's this yeah. anxiety about that. You know, there's a moment in the displaced person yeah. that uh, the displaced person is about a European having to flee Europe, you know, because of the war. So it's very much relevant in that story to bring up something about Nazism or concentration camps. But there's a similar sense that um, in the displaced person, the characters want to think of that as a very foreign type of barbarism that we don't have here in the South right, and right. want to ignore the, the, the ugliness and sin right at home part that partly comes yeah. through racism. And here she's connecting them together in this dream state, almost like she's having a vision of the fact that this cat categorizing of people and ha- making people into a hierarchy and deciding who's better and who's worse, dehumanizing some people, mm. um, it can lead down this, ugly, extreme, terrifying path. And not only that, but she's mixing together this idea of cattle and humans. She just mm-hmm. mentioned white-faced cattle, and that phrase yep. comes up again. Yep. And then talks about cramming people together in a boxcar. That that kind of language is often used to talk about treating people like cattle or treating yes. people like animals instead of human beings. Um, of course, in this story, getting human beings confused with livestock is key to the whole story. Yeah. Am I a hog? Or am I me? And how can I be both? Yeah. And in the end of the story, Flannery O'Connor thought about ending the story with this line. A red glow suffused them. They appeared to pant with a secret life about the hogs. She she actually mm-hmm. initially ended the yeah. story there, and then she later added more to it, she said. Um, I'm really glad she did because I love what she added. Because she adds the vision. Right. Um, but that she actually thought about ending the story with this idea that, that dignifies the hogs rather right. than just dragging Mrs. Turpin down to the level of a hog. It also dignifies the hogs. They're God's creatures too. Yeah. They're watched over by the sun that's suffusing them with a red glow too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Miss Turpin is like hogs that are supposed to be the smartest animal. And she's like smarter than dogs. Like, Yes, smarter than dogs. Like, come on. She said she doubted it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I no offense to dog lovers, owners. Um, dogs can be smart. I mean, Eddie on Fraser, smart dog like Eddie. He probably knows a thousand words. Um, but human beings are actually said by modern people to be the most intelligent animal. Ooh, That's how modern people think. Yeah, you're right. And you're right. I th- I thought that again was creating a blur um, between humans and animals. When you start thinking that way, it's very easy to decide that some people don't deserve to live and you can exterminate them like animals. Yeah. That The way she's thinking is connected to deeply evil thinking, like the Nazis, and it makes right, it explicit right. in this story. Well, and that's, that's what Flannery O'Connor saw as the future of secular humanism, was like the, the best-intentioned... Uh, socialistic, you know, um, progress and, 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 uh, you know, initiatives will lead only to the gas chambers. Like, if you take away God, you cannot keep from destroying the dignity of people. Mm -hmm. And then 
if people don't have dignity, they're at the mercy of mm-hmm. the government mm-hmm. determining their worth or their rightness or their belonging. And, you know, like the Uyghur Muslims in China, you know, they've massacred like three million of them already. But, um, but that's a good example of like a very modern day equivalent of um, like the Holocaust after, you know, during the Civil War or the Armenian Genocide that happened after World War I. Um, and you can seem pleasant. You can seem classy. Yeah. You can seem nice. You can seem um, efficient. You can seem cultured. And you can commit barbaric atrocities. That those yeah. things don't, they're not in conflict with each other. Right. Yeah, and, and you could see, like, the end of wokeism could go as far as, like, we're going to, um, you know, euthanize or we're going to castrate every person that's said the N-word or we're going to, you know, um, we're just going to get rid of white people because they've been the privileged race for, for too long. Like, like it's possible, I know it seems outlandish, but it's like to everyone in the 1910s and 20s, there was a lot of, like, anti-Semitism across the world in the 1910s and 20s, but certainly no one could have imagined that they would be, you know, the Jews would be singled out and put on trains and sent to gas ovens. That, that I mean, they couldn't have fathomed it. And so, you know, that's it's just interesting to think about, like, what are people against right now? Well, the, the fact that people call themselves anti-racist, it's like... Well, you hate racists, so you're just a hateful person against different people than racists are. And, and you know, I think Ruby Turpin is a good example of someone who, deep in her heart, she probably has a lot of self-hate that she uh, tries to externalize in her uh, classification of people, right? Like, that's, that's her coping mechanism for a brokenness she feels for herself, and you know, she feels like she's overweight and, you know, like she, it, it, you know, I think she thinks of herself as ugly. And so it's, you know, it's like, if you see yourself through God's eyes, you can see the beauty of your spirit, even if you don't like, you know, your hairline or your height or your, you know, skin color or your, um, you know, I don't know, like your, your, your features on your face or, or, you know, I don't like the way that my, you know, knees look or whatever. It's like, there are things that we can get fixated on because we really aren't looking at who we are in our spirit first. And I think that there are ways, you know, there are healthy ways to, to take care of yourself and there are unhealthy ways. And, and those unhealthy ways can go, you know, all the way from the like anorexia, bulimia into things to like the morbid obesity side of things. And so, um, you know, here's a story that's, it's about like how to take care of yourself, really. Like it's about like how to be healthy, right? I mean, all these people are unhealthy, but they're not just physically unhealthy. Some of them are mentally unhealthy, and certainly everyone in the waiting room is spiritually unhealthy in some way. And I say that because it says the secretary listened to the radio, right? Like, that's one of the details we get very early on. And I thought it was interesting because it says, let me find it. I think it's on the second page. Um, mm, I'm looking... um, 
it just says something like the nurses were in the back and, and the secretary listened to the, was listening to the radio, and yet the secretary is never there. Yeah, there it is. It says it had a rectangular panel in it that permitted a view of the office where the nurse came and went and the secretary listened to the radio. And yet the secretary is gone. Only the radio is playing. And I was thinking, what if, <laughs> what if the secretary got raptured and everyone else was left? And now that's, that's a wild guess. But it's interesting that the secretary is, is the, the most prominent missing character in the story. Yeah, because there's no one to call the ambulance. You remember how the doctor yep. has to say, yep. uh, if there's anyone who's not busy, could someone call an ambulance? And the secretary would be the obvious person sitting yeah. at a phone to call the ambulance. And the, the, man, the man that laughs at Claude's joke, he's the one that calls uh-huh. the ambulance. So, um, so I say that because... Where on earth is the secretary? <laughs> oh, she, he, she come out in and out from time to time. That's what the, the, the deliverer says. And I say that because he comes in, and after that moment, that's when the you-know-what hits the fan, right? Like, up until that point... Oh, yeah, because then everyone starts talking in racist terms, yes, like, very explicitly, yes. because that white trash woman says that she wants all of the black people mm-hmm. sent back to Africa... And it does seem to me that Mary Grace is infuriated by what they're saying. She finds it, pro- I mean, if she goes to Wellesley, she probably is, you know, educated enough to find that reprehensible. Right, I mean, right. you know what I mean? Like, she's been exposed to different ideas from that, and it does seem to inflame her more yeah. and more as the conversation takes that direction. She's got a more militant progressivism toward race than, say, Julian in Everything That Rises Must Converge. And so... It's interesting that that, you know, the, the secretary is gone and this man comes in, you know, and he's on a bicycle and, you know, he's kind of dancing and he's like listening to the gospel music, which apparently no one else is listening to. Um, and, you know, it's of course, it's there intentionally. Flannery O'Connor doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't, you know, mistakenly put something in a story. It's like, she put it there intentionally, but I also think that she is so guided by the Holy Spirit, especially in these in, in these last stories, that she has this, you know, they call it the beatific vision. Like, this story ends with a, like, Flannery O'Connor version of the beatific vision. And the the song that's playing, it says, You go to blank blank and I'll go to mine, but we'll all blank along together. And all along the blank will help each other out, smiling in any kind of weather. And it says Mrs. Turpin didn't catch every word, but she caught enough to agree with the spirit of the song, and it turned her thoughts sober. And I thought that was a really powerful word. Like, this story is about sobering your mind. Mm -hmm. And someone that's racist doesn't have a sober mind. And she had said she likes to laugh at everything, likes to laugh yes, at life. Yes. And by the end of the story, she cannot make herself even smile. Yeah, that's a great, she's, great point. She's just grim. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think, like, well, who is the most sober-minded person that's ever lived? Jesus. Like, he, he literally is never out of his right mind. And so it's like he is going to agonize at the death of Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise him. And we talked about that last episode. He's going to show that he wants to heal. Um, like when the, um, 
the Gentile woman comes to him and she's like, but you know, even the dogs get to eat the, the food off the, off the ground, you know, the scraps. And, and you know, Jesus is like, that's, that's what I wanted to hear. Like, he's like, you, you stayed with me when I told you, like, I thought I was only supposed to be here to heal the Jews, you know, (laughs) like, like, why are you here? You know, because he's, he's, He's giving her the chance to show faith, which I think is, that's what happens in this story, is Ruby Turpin is given the opportunity to show faith. And that's, you know, when, when people talk about Flannery O'Connor's violent grace, you know, doesn't get much more violent than this story. I mean, she gets a textbook, not, not like a little paperback. We're talking about, like, this thing's probably as big as a calculus book. And it hits her on the left eye, and... <laughs> And then Mary Grace starts choking her, and it says she has two little, like, uh, pink crescent moon, you know, little little imprints on her neck. So, she, I mean, it feels like Mary Grace was trying to literally kill her, and yet what doesn't kill you makes you stronger if you believe. And I think that, that, like we're saying, this is where the poverty of spirit starts for Ruby Turpin. She doesn't go immediately to hungry and thirsting for righteousness. She goes from poverty of spirit to mourning. I don't even know if she gets to meekness. But she starts questioning God. Yeah, yeah. Which is a healthier place to be than just patting yourself on the back and assuming he endorses all of your thoughts and ideas. Yeah. She starts questioning God. It connects her to Job and, like, Job's friends um, at one point in the story. Yeah. Um, But she starts questioning God, and God gives her a vision of what is true instead of yeah. how her ego has been uh, understanding and ordering reality and a hierarchy. He, God gives her a vision of, of the true hierarchy, yeah. which is to say that people like her who march with great dignity and stand for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. Um, it says they're at the back of the, the hierarchy, the back of the parade here to heaven. They're still going to go to heaven, which I think is significant. Yeah. If they have, some faith in Jesus, they get to go to heaven. Yeah. They're just not as honored as people who were more humble than them. Yeah. And it says even their virtues were being burned away yeah. because it seems as if they worked up their own virtues. And it's not that they had no yeah. virtue, but it was all in their own strength. And yeah. our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to these beautiful robes that God will give us. Yeah. And the story says, um, that the white trash people who are at the front of the procession have on, and, and the black people who are at the front of the procession have on white robes cleaner than anything they ever wore in life. Yeah. Um, but that's the thing. People like Mrs. Turpin have to get new robes that are cleaner than anything they wore in life, yeah, too. They just point. didn't realize that their robes were dirty, that yeah. they had made for themselves. Well, and it's, you know, you mentioned that, like, basically the pharisaical side of religion and then of course there's the the atheistic side of religion as well and if if you're not a believer in Christ and you're still listening <laughs> this late in the podcast thank you so much for for just bearing with us and and I hope that some of our commentary has just opened your eyes you know to to just your own spirit and and just the reality of God. But, you know, one of the things that I think is hardest for a non-believer is like, I need God to prove himself to me on my terms. 
And Ruby actually does that. Like, she is actually coming from a, like, like when you said Job perspective of, like, I've endured so much hardship and, and trial and, and uh, loss and, and trauma and, and desecration. And then how dare you, right? And, and she keeps questioning, how am I a hog? And God never answers her with what she's asking. And I think that that's, it's hard to know what to ask of God other than like coming from where you're at, you know, if you don't have any faith, you want God to just appear to you like he does to Paul. Like, like oh, Jesus appears to Paul. There we go. He's blinded. Like, you want a road to Damascus moment. And, you know, some people get that. So don't, don't think you can't get that. Yeah. But my be, father had an experience like that, a vision. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't have necessarily believed it if it hadn't happened to someone I know so right. well, who I know is telling the truth. But I believe if you go to God with an open mind and say, I just need to see, I need you to show me, he's merciful. He'll work with you. Yeah. And just, you know, the, the best way to, to escape atheism is just to ask God to show himself to yeah. you. And just whether that whether you get a trait of God, whether you get a vision of God, whether you get uh, an interaction with a, you know, a believer, mm-hmm. whatever that is, the best thing to know in, in life is who God is. Because you can't really know yourself truly and completely if you deny that God is, is even there. Because you, you miss the spirit like you you can't know your spirit completely if if you deny that the that god that made it and, is there yeah. and you know you're talking about knowing yourself being so important um before she has her vision she keeps hearing an echo of what she says yeah, yeah. and i actually think that one of the ways that god speaks to us is by helping us hear ourselves and understand ourselves better yeah um there's a moment until we have faces by c.s lewis where the main character has this complaint against God and she wants to read it. She wants to be heard. She thinks that she's right and that she'll be proven right. And she reads it. And after a while, she actually realizes that she's been reading it over and over again. She hadn't, didn't, didn't just read it once. She's read it countless times. She just keeps harping on it and reading it over and over again. And she finally hears herself maybe yeah. 10 times into it. And says, wow, everything I'm saying, I'm realizing that all my complaints are, are my ego, yeah. my pride. They, all my, what I feel were, felt were legitimate complaints against God are actually just me wanting glory, me wanting to have things my way, me wanting everyone to give everything to me and me not wanting to have to give anything back. She just started hearing herself. And yeah. sometimes if you question God enough, suddenly you hear yourself and you realize what you're saying and who you're saying it to. And that's all it takes. Yeah. Well, and I just think about the fact that her mind's turned sober, or sorry, her mind turns sober when she hears the, the, the gospel song, but she can't hear every word. You yeah. go to blank, blank, and I'll go to mine. And it's actually from uh, a hymn from 1930 um, written in um, the Great Depression by Phillips. Haynes Lord for his fictional character, clergyman and backwoods philosopher Seth Parker. I'm reading this from Wikipedia, by the way. 
um, that emanate from the waiting room radio, it says the lyrics are derived from you go to your church and I'll go to mine. And so uh, you go to your church and I'll go to mine, but we'll all walk along together. And all along the road, we'll help each other out, smiling in any kind of weather. And, you know, as we're going to talk about in the Omega episode, the title of this short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, that's, that song is, is illustrating the concept that if you are in, in Christ, you will rise together. Like everything will come together in, in one heaven. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be segregated heavens. There's just one heaven. And what she realizes, I think, that the kind of smiling through any kind of weather that she'd been capable of doing in her own strength was pretty glib and yes. um, incapable of lasting. She was like, oh, I'm the kind of person who's just always happy and joyful. But then when something happens to her, the challenge is that it falls apart. And this maybe is a vision of a genuine lasting happiness. It's not built on the basis of feeling superior to other people. Yeah. Yeah, I think about just all of the things that happen at the end here. You know, I'm just going to read the very end because it's so powerful. It says, She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of black inwards in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs and bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who like herself and Claude had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right she leaned forward to observe them closer they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small, and, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. And I mean, if that ending doesn't just... I mean, like I feel like I almost just got cut in half like straight from the head to the toe. Um, Flannery O'Connor ends her life with, you know, two, two really three stories, but two main stories, this story and Parker's back, hanging onto that tree, crying like a baby, and climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. And I mean, those are not the words of someone who thinks she's going to live 40 more years. She's writing knowing that she isn't going to get to write a lot more stories and that she ends these stories so powerfully and so just honestly, like in, in the, in the end time in revelation, people will be singing hallelujah. Like it won't, there won't be 
uh, you get behind me in line. You'll you'll be last in line, and you'll just be singing the loudest. You'll be singing like Adele level, or like, you know, I don't even know who to compare to. Like, you will have the best voice of anyone, and you'll be singing clearly and profoundly, and you'll be the last person to get to heaven. I mean that that's that's how much joy and peace and 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 just transcendence will be in the end time. And Ruby gets a vision of that, but she gets a vision of where she'll be in that line, which is, you know, the lame shall enter first. Like we just talked about that a couple episodes ago. God's order of people is not our order. And it's God's, it's God's option and it's God's prerogative and it's God's responsibility and it's God's joy to order people for heaven as befits his calling, his purpose, his vision. And Ruby hasn't allowed God's vision to, to, um, to, to illuminate her path until this moment. And what a humble place for her to end, and yet what a, what a glorifying place for Flannery O'Connor to end. It's like Flannery O'Connor is... You know, she she is throwing the book at the, the 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 cultural Christianity. She's throwing the book at secular humanism. She is trying to choke it to death, and yet she's the one that dies. Like cultural Christianity is still here, sad to say. Secular humanism still here, but in the end, that those people are are long gone. Like that they're. They're still on earth, they're in hell, I don't know where they are, but they're not on the train walking up to the path toward heaven because they're not singing hallelujah. And we'll see so clearly in the end, I love that picture of how clearly we'll be able to see that if someone else is being acclaimed on in heaven more than I am, I'll be able to see so clearly that it's right exactly. and just that I won't have any issue with it, how freeing that is. Yeah. I mean, how, how I long to be free on earth from comparing myself to other people and trying to figure out where I fit in Yeah. and if I'm good enough. Yeah. Um, that the glorious freedom that this pictures and you see the contrast from the beginning of the story. It comes full circle at the very end beginning of the story. She, barges into that waiting room with her little black eyes just examining every person and every detail and looking to find fault and looking to find superiority and looking to find validation for herself in the end her small eyes are fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead she's looking ahead to eternity and it says she remained where she was immobile and then she makes her slow way to the house she's such a force and she's exerting her power on everyone in the room in the yeah. beginning and here and she's and she thinks she's so much harder working and so much less lazy and has so much more spirit than everyone else yeah. and here in the end she's just immobilized and mm. she stopped working to prove how great she is and True. how freeing yeah and this is the the ultimate sober mind that she's not only sober to see people the way they are on earth but she actually sees the way God has ordered them, calling them to heaven. And she sees that, like, the people in the front aren't singing on key. So she actually sees, oh, well, these people actually 
can't sing on key metaphorically to praise God, but they're still doing it at the top of their lungs. And so there's this like, I think that's one of the challenging things in, in the Christian world is like, how on earth does the body of believers have a heart that's no more important than the toenail, you know? And yet, if you've had a toenail ripped off, which I haven't, thank the Lord, I would guess having a toenail is pretty important if you get yours ripped off. Obviously, not having a heartbeat is essential, but... All you can think about is your toenail if you have a severe pain in your toenail. I mean, it is important. Every part of the body is important. And just that thought of, like, why would God make us have to have toenails? And yet, I mean... I think almost every, even pigs, like they, you know, they have hoofs, um, hooves. This idea of like protection on your feet and this show, this story, this show, (laughs) this television show, this story is all about people's feet. And that feet are an indication of something. And I think that Ruby Turpin wants the feet to be indicative of their class. And yet, you know, when you think about, like, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He says to the disciples when they go into a town, preach the kingdom of heaven, and if they don't receive it, shake the dust off their sandals. There's, there's a lot of talk about feet in the Gospels, and it's because feet are important. But this idea of everyone is walking on the path at the end of the story, and Flannery O'Connor couldn't walk at the end of her life, and... It's just such a sweet thought to know. It's not just a like, oh, wouldn't it be great if? It's like it is true, and that's why it's so sweet to know Flannery O'Connor is standing tall in heaven, and maybe she is at the end of the line. I don't know, you know, but that she's there redeemed and restored in, in, in you know, garments whiter and cleaner and and more profound than anything that she could have on earth. And I mean, here's someone who really, really loved aesthetics, especially peacocks. And, you know, thinking about this story being like the last, you know, the, the intended last one of this collection, it's just so, it's so moving to think about, oh man, here's another story about someone, you know, that's, that's judgmental. Here's another story about, you know, um, racism in the South. Here's another story about like, you know, farming. And you know, it's like, in a way, this is, this is kind of like, uh, it's, it's almost like she had already written every story and she just, <laughs> she just kind of put them all together in one. <laughs> but, but this to me, you know, a lot of people will say, start with this story. And the reason we ended with it is I thought the ending of the story is, is, a vision not just that Ruby Turbin gets, but that I think Flannery got too. And and to think like she shared that vision in a story, even even if it's her way, like it's probably not as beautiful as God gave it to her, but she shared it with people so that we can know God better, not so we can praise her more, you know? And and I, I just I, I'm grateful for her sharing of her faith. And, and I hope, you know, I hope people feel that way about me sharing my faith and, and Whitney feels the same way, you know, on this podcast and in our teaching and just in, in our daily lives. Um, but just that this 
you know, this is a story a lot of people want to start with because it's so indicative of the intensity without the kind of, um, like, to me, this story is about certainty and mystery. And it starts with certainty and ends with mystery. And, and the opposite of certainty is not uncertainty. It's mystery. It's the sense that I can know these things and the other things might just be unknowable. Not things that like, oh, I can't be certain of them, but th- there's an answer out there. It's like there's some things that just are not going to have answers this side of paradise. We talked a lot in the last season when we discussed Absalom, Absalom about how complex the world is, mm-hmm. as depicted by Faulkner, how complex people are, how complex history is. And we didn't talk as much in terms of mystery with Faulkner because I don't think he thought in terms of mystery as much. He thought Ooh, more in terms of good. a muddle. I mean, it seems to, it seems as if um, it's a, a muddle or a free for all. Yeah. Um, lots of, lots of uncertainty. Absolutely. No, no real, uh, no real mystery. Mm-hmm. Everything like, like we talked about with Jason Compson, like everything he didn't know, he would say, um, like, like long-windedly and everything that, that Rosa Colefield didn't know she would say like very briefly, mm-hmm. but that it wasn't, I don't know. It's like, it, it just felt like they, they, they would have grasped it. And, and, and the uncertainty was like their weakness instead of like, it's actually a strength to say that some things are mysterious and, and, yeah. and unknowable. And to not need to control, to try to control everything and know everything and to, to recognize that impossibility, but believe that there's a God who does know everything and who is in control is a very different sensation from acknowledging that you can't know everything and that some things are unknowable and just feeling a sense of despair or fear in response to that, which I think is a very modern response to that acknowledgement. I, Adam, what you were just saying made me think about one more Tim Keller shout out that I'll okay. give before we end the podcast. <laughs> um, Tim Keller told a story about um, Johnny Erickson Tata, who um, had a spinal cord injury, I believe, and was paralyzed. And she was at a worship service once where I think this must have been soon after she had mm-hmm. her injury. Um, everyone was asked to kneel and pray to the Lord. And she burst out crying, realizing that she couldn't kneel. Mm. And, um, was starting to feel despairing, you know, about just very discouraged about her injury. And then she realized that after the resurrection, she said, the first thing I'll do after the resurrection is kneel before Mm. Jesus. And she was just so joyful Mm. thinking about that. And it made her not feel embittered about not being able to kneel now temporarily. And he's making the point that our, when we believe in a resurrection as Christians, it frees us to not have to be able to do everything right now. And whether that's because we've been disabled and we can't do it right now or because we don't have the money to do the things or the time to accomplish the things we like to accomplish, we have an eternity in a real body, in a real recreated heaven and earth that's material and we get, he says, we get to eat like Jesus yeah. ate in his resurrection body. We get to hug. We get to make music. We yeah. get to see beautiful places on this earth that God created that we yeah. may never have gotten to see while we're here in our short lives. Yeah. Um, as a Christian, you don't have to mourn over the things you don't get to do on earth. And I think Flannery O'Connor really understood that. And she might be, you know, I mean, I know she's in heaven right now. She might be 
describing the sunset with words, like in another language that we don't know. I mean, you know, she she was so good at at uh, bringing the beauty of of the natural world to life in in her words, um, and it just I think it's indicative of she was a painter by 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 passion. Like her, her passion was the visual world and her, her talent was in the written word and, and just the, the sounds and turns of phrases and things like that. And, um, she just does such a, a, an amazing job of reflecting God's glory and God's grandeur and, and, and God's beauty on earth. But, but in heaven, she won't be writing a violent grace. She'll be writing a sweet grace and she'll be writing, you know, I don't know what else she would be writing. But I think I think that she will still have that opportunity to be a writer in heaven, just the same way as that. I hope I still get to teach in heaven, still get to write in heaven, still get to make music in heaven, still get to paint in heaven, like what whatever it is, still get to swim in heaven. I don't know if there's going to be water in heaven, but you never know. Um, but but just thinking about Flannery O'Connor does not end her life on earth dying from lupus and the complications from, you know, from lupus. She doesn't end in a woe is me. She doesn't end in a, I just don't have the energy to do this. She literally works herself to death. Like she's working when she dies. And bless you. And I think that that's indicative that it's, it's actually a good thing to do something with your time Till the day you die like retiring from life is not a good life path for christians retiring from from your you know occupation might be tim keller also said that martin luther was asked what would you do if you knew jesus were returning tomorrow and he said plant a tree yeah because he said imagine when the new heavens and the new earth come and the world's recreated how beautiful that tree is going to be yeah and i thought wow what if you gave an answer like what would you do if you knew Jesus was returning tomorrow? Conceive a child. Try to conceive a child. Like, because that'd be one more life that would get to yeah. just enjoy that eternity. I mean, wow, what a hopeful answer yeah. that shows a a unique and compelling vision of what our afterlife is going to be like, what our yeah. eternity is going to be like. And I think that that's one of the great gifts that Flannery... You know, we talk about Mrs. Turpin thinking she... <laughs> Yeah, I highlighted it in yellow just so I could find it. To help anybody out that needed it was her philosophy in life. She never spared herself when she found somebody in need, whether they were white or black, trash or decent. And in Flannery's in ending of life, she's actually helping people out. Like, the best way she can help people out is to give them a vision of, of violent grace because if if you knew how much grace God had for you, you'd be crying like a baby holding on to the pecan tree like Parker. And you might get the vision that Ruby Turpin does at the end of the story, seeing people, you know, of all walks of life, you know, going on a unique path set by, you know, determined by God to heaven and hearing them sing hallelujah. And, and, you know, a lot of times we can get caught up with how dark the world is and how, you know, it's not as good as it used to be. And the reality is, outside of heaven, it, it's never going to be heaven on earth. And so the sooner people just 
let that be so, the sooner they can say, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to, to live the kingdom of heaven on earth. And, I, you know, I try to do that in, in my life, and Whitney and I do it in our marriage. And, you know, w- w- we pursue that because that's part of what our faith looks like. And, you know, w- we are inhabiting the kingdom of heaven on earth, but when we die, we won't have the kingdom of earth holding us back from the kingdom of heaven. And I think Flannery had that same sense of, like, my lupus is actually holding me back from heaven, not holding me back from earth. And if you can come to that level of faith, then you truly are going to be free on earth. And so, you know, Revelation, uh, that's why I wanted to talk about last, because it's just such a, it's such a moving thought to think a dying woman writes this story that's so grotesque and weird and funny and severe and, you know, it's got all these like really inflammatory things in it, but that she, she confronts, like she doesn't sidestep and say, I'm too sick. I'm going to write a sweet little story. I'm going to, I'm too sick. I'm going to kind of like avoid this topic. She really tries to just meet people where they are. And of course, you know, 2021 is different than 1964, but I think that Jesus meets you where you are. And so Flannery is, is reflecting that in her writing rather than trying to kind of crush people and be like, do you feel poor in spirit yet? She's just trying to kind of hold a mirror up to them and be like, well, how, how poor in spirit do you feel compared to Mrs. Turpin? And like Whitney was saying, she's like, actually related to Mrs. Turpin's like initial thoughts. And then you realize, oh gosh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not better than this person because no one is good but God alone. And, and that's where this story, I think, really um, synthesizes everything we've talked about with the other stories is it really, it, it completes Flannery O'Connor's vision in a way that I can't imagine talking about another story after this. Like if there had been yet another story in this collection. I can't imagine it being above this one in terms of like just the, the power and the finality of this one. And it's not because it's finality in a nihilistic way. It's because it's about like, like we started off with the alpha episode. This is what would you do if you knew we're going to, you were going to die? What would your last song be like? What would the last breath of your life be? This story projects forward into vast eternity in a way exactly. that none of the others do. Exactly. And that's that's why I wanted to end with it because it's not an ending story, it's a transition story. And and ironically enough, transition, I thought about the Parker's back moment where it's like he would have nothing else to do with her and then it's like they were married the next day at the <laughs> and and that's how that's exactly how this story works when she throws the book at him. Uh, when she throws the book at, at Ruby, she it just comes out of nowhere, right? It says, uh, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It says, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. She cried aloud. The book struck her directly over her left eye. That she's thinking she's right with Jesus because she's like, well, I have everything in proportion. And yet race or class or the combination of the two is not about what proportions they're in or how they're ranked. It's about where are you in standing to God? And she has to learn that the hard way, but at least she learns it. 
Well, we got the Omega episode coming up last, <laughs> rightfully so. Uh, so we'll look forward to uh, talking about the collection as a whole and, and you know, revisiting all these stories. Uh, Whitney, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. All right, so uh, we'll look forward to the last episode, the Omega episode, coming at you next time on Summer Reading with the Deals. Bye.